for the next three Sundays leading up to Easter, we are going to embark on a sermon series, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This is what we're doing is we're focusing on the last three days of Jesus. Today, we obviously focus on Friday, what happened. Next Sunday, I'm really excited. I'm preaching for the first time of what was happening on that Saturday when seemingly hope, good, had been defeated and lost. Saturday, I would argue, is where you and I find most of our days in our lives. It's the day after we pray for something, but the day before it gets answered. It's the day after someone we love dies, a day we long for to be reunited again. It's where we live most of our lives. And then, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we will end with Sunday. Today, today we begin looking at Friday, and, and I, I love I don't know if you could tell, but I, that's why if you're new to our church, there's a big old cross, and then there's another cross, and if it was up to me, there'd be like 20 crosses all over the sanctuary. Because Friday for me, and the events surrounding, surrounding Friday, I think you see the clearest demonstration of what the gospel is. And if you are not uh, uh, familiar with our church, we talk a lot about the gospel in our church because here is the reason why. And if you're new to our church, this anchors us in all that we do. And I could frankly talk about this more. And it's this paradigm shifting truth. And that is this. The gospel is not just for Christians. The gospel is for, I, I'm sorry, the gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's been a while since I've said this. But the gospel is also for Christians. Is it flashing up there somehow? The gospel is not just for non-Christians, but it's for Christians. There's a great misunderstanding in the church, if you grew up in the church, that I've been trying to debunk and sort of, sort of uh, 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 deconstruct all of my years as a pastor here at this church. And that is, some of us think, have this idea that what saves us is believing the gospel, but then what matures us and grows us is living really hard or trying really hard to live according to biblical principles. But the evidence in the New Testament, and if you were to come around this if you were to come around this truth that's found everywhere in the New Testament, you and I would experience life transformation. For example, Paul in Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. He's talking about his Christian life. He says, I live by what? I live by faith. I live by faith. I, 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 I don't live by working hard. I don't live by trying. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To Paul, it's clear that what saves you and what matures you is the same thing. The gospel is what saves you, the truth of who Christ is. And as you see, what he has done in his love and in his sacrifice for me what transforms us and every part of our heart, our mind, our life is not doing something else but by believing the gospel more deeply. Church, are you with me this morning? To me, I've argued for most of my life in ministry that it's our lack of deep belief in and daily appropriation of the gospel that leads to spiritual deadness, pride. And it's amazing to me that I still have conversations with Christians who say, I know what the gospel is, but what's next? How do I grow? And I go, it's the same thing. The problem, of course, is 
Are we appropriating, digging deeply and deeper into the essence of what the gospel is? We never graduate church from this school. Do you understand that? No, I get that, Peter. I've heard it a thousand times. I grew up in church. What's next? There is no next. This is the essence of the Christian life. And, 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 and turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 23, because Luke chapter 23, among the other gospels to me, is my favorite Good Friday text. Luke, who is a doctor, a physician, gives a ton of details surrounding the death of Jesus. And in this text that we're going to look at, we not only see the beautiful facets of what the gospel is, but how you and I could appropriate these shoes daily, moment by moment, so that we would grow, so that we would mature, so that we would be transformed. Verse 32 is where we pick up. It's two other men, both criminals. Some of us were taught growing up in church that they were thieves. You are not executed for stealing. The only two reasons why you were executed in the Roman Empire, one was for treason, the other was for murder. These are bad people. These are people who killed people. Both criminals were also led to him to be executed. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the Skull, they were crucified. They, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people, verse 35, stood watching. And I love how Luke says that the people stood watching because he's saying this to you and me. There are people standing there 2,000 years ago watching the single greatest event in the history of the world. And Luke says, they don't get it. But he's saying, do you get it? You're sitting here this morning, you're watching. Oh, Peter, I've heard this a thousand times. And Luke says, no, I know, I know. But do you get it? Is it real to you? Has it transformed your life? The people stood watching. And the rulers even stared at him. They said, he others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. They're essentially saying, some savior, he saved others, can't even save himself. No. No, he saved others because he wouldn't save himself. Soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a, a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Are you the Christ? Well, then save yourself and me. Save yourself. You God, save yourself and us. Let me stop here and say this. I'm going to park here for a little bit because the first criminal comes to Jesus like a Millions of people come to Jesus every year. What does the first criminal say? Essentially, he says, Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the son of God. Look, I'd be happy to believe in you. I'd, I'd be happy to worship you. I'd be happy to surrender myself to you. One condition, one condition, one condition. Get me out of here. And see, in a morning like this, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that 
Some of us are on very familiar emotional terrain, as I like to say once in a while. You might not even consider yourself Christian. You might not even consider yourself religious or spiritual necessarily. And you're in some trouble right now. I mean, that's why you're even here. You're experiencing some hardship financially or relationally or even in your marriage or maybe your career. And maybe you walked in here because your friend invited you. Maybe you walked in here and you're saying to yourself, maybe I need God in my life. Maybe I need God in my life. I need him to be real. I need him to, to show up. I, and maybe he is someone worth trusting and someone worth worshiping. So here's what many of us do. We say, God, if you're there and if you're real, then get me out of here. God, if you're there and you're real, I might want to trust you. I might want to believe in you, but answer my prayers. Or, 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 or this, or this, God, if you're there and you're real, God, if you're there and you're real, then do something about this. Yeah. And it sounds reasonable enough, but can I just point something out? And that is when you and I say, God, I will believe you if, God, I will serve you if, do you and I not realize that you and I are revealing the real and true God of our lives? Did you and I not realize that when we say, God, I will believe you, serve you if, whatever is on the other side of that if is the true God of our lives? And do you realize, I'm going to push you here, what we're essentially saying is, God, if you're real, if you will help me worship this as Lord, then I will be glad to serve you as Lord. God, I will be glad to serve you as Lord if you will help me serve this as Lord. And I just want to say, I think God's sister, they're going, come back when you're serious. Not because he's insecure, but because he's good and he will not help you find joy outside of himself. The other more subtle form of this goes something like this, and that is, I'm interested in being a Christian, I'm interested in Christianity, but I hear this all the time, do I have to give that up? Do I have to stop doing that? Or Christians, our form goes like this. I want to give all of my life to him and worship him as Lord. But do I have to give, stop doing that? Do I have to give that up? And essentially what we're saying is this. I'd be happy to worship you. I'd be happy to serve you. I'd be happy to bow down and surrender my life to you as Lord. As long as you keep supporting how I want to live. Do you realize how silly it is to come with to Jesus if he is who he says he is with these conditions? Do you realize how silly it is to come to Jesus with these conditions? Can you understand why maybe Jesus says to some of us this morning, how can you understand, how can you possibly understand what your life is supposed to be like when you don't even know the author of life? Jesus says, come to me. If you want to know who you are, know me. Seek me. Find me. Jesus says, I know who you are. I created you. 
the way that you and I are going to find yourself, the way that you are going to find your mission in life is not by trying really hard to find yourself or to find your mission in life. It's by finding Jesus. Jesus has come to me. Seek me. Find me. Some of us are out there, and I say this all the time, trying to find our names by sweating blood, sweat, and tears. And Jesus says, I have given you a name by shedding my blood, sweat, and tears. Come to me. Know me. Seek me. So here's where we begin this morning. What is your motivational center? Be honest this morning or else you and I are just going to stand and watch and walk out, have lunch, and go about our day and go about our weeks. What is your motivational center? In other words, about what are you saying this morning? God, can you do something about this? About what are you and I saying this morning? God, can you do something about this? What is our true motivational center? Our non-negotiable. The thing that is the end and not the means. The thing that we really live for, prioritize, work for. Give of our time, effort, and energy for. And to help you along... Here in all of my years as a pastor are the common things that you and I look to as our motivational centers. For some of us, it's our marriage. Some of us, our careers. For some of us, it's our it's relationships, romance. Some of us, it's our grace. Some of us, our ministry, money, success, cause, children. I need you to be rigorously honest this morning. Can you put that list up, at least, about what are you saying this morning? God, do something about this. Are you searching? Are you seeking? You long for God to be real in your life. Listen, there's a world of difference between genuinely asking questions and barking orders. The God that I know welcomes questions, amen? He doesn't mind questions. He welcomes hard questions. I want to tell you something. The God that I worship even welcomes doubts. Read the book of Psalms. It's full of people doubting, questioning God. The Son of God on the cross, his last cry is a question, why? God welcomes questions, but there's a world of difference between asking questions and barking orders. And maybe if our questions are not being answered, it's not because we're asking questions, it's because we're barking orders. How do I know if I'm barking orders, Peter? Simple. Are you saying, God, I will believe you if. I'll worship you if. Do something about this. What does the second criminal do? It's interesting to me, verse 40, but the other criminal rebukes him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. Verse 41, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, 
doesn't say, God, I'll believe you if. God, I'll surrender to you if. God, I will if. What does he say? He simply says, I want to be with you even if. You don't get me out of this. God, I want to be with you even if. He don't answer this prayer. God, I want to be with you even even if you don't do something about this. Friends, Christianity will only work for you if you serve him whether he works for you or not. If you come to Jesus just to have your needs met, although Jesus can meet the deepest needs of our hearts, if you come to Jesus just to get your needs met, you will neither get your need met nor meet him. Are you Jesus? Are you who you say you are? Start there. Start there. The second criminal actually gets it. A life-changing encounter with Jesus begins there. He recognizes what his motivational center is, and he replaces that with Jesus. And he says, I want to be with you even if... I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to either walk out of here this morning saying, unless he does something about this, I'm out of here. Or you're going to walk out of here saying, I want to be with you even if. Even if. Church, is this hard? This is what true repentance is. Jesus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you repent. You're never going to make any spiritual progress in your life unless you and I recognize the real thing that we're building a life on, the real thing that is our significance, the real thing that is our hope, the real thing we are saying, God, do something about this. Unless we recognize what that is, acknowledge what that is, unless we replace that with Jesus. Unless we go to Jesus and say, I want to stop building my life on that. And I want to start building my life on the unshakable rock that is Jesus. We'll never meet him. You'll come to church week after week, day after day, and we'll never meet him. Does this prayer sound familiar? Does this prayer sound familiar? Because if I had to summarize 90% of my counseling sessions, this is our prayer. God, if you're really there, help me with blank. I need faith and strength so that I can get through blank. If you'll just help me with blank, I won't ask for anything else. Can we just be real honest this morning? Any of us ever pray this prayer? Has it ever occurred to you that whatever is in that blank is the very thing that's strangling you. Does it ever occur to you and me that the very thing that fills that blank, 
God, if you will just help me with this, help me with this. Does it ever occur to you and me, us, that whatever is in that blank is the root source of our fear, of our anxiety, of our confusion, of our anger? Does it ever occur to any of us very thing that we're asking for is the very thing that is a root source. What is hindering us from growing spiritually? Maybe what we think is the problem is not the problem. What would happen? What would happen if that prayer, if that prayer that I pray every day sometimes, and you pray, what happens if that prayer became God? I don't need you to help me with this. I need you to be the center. I need you to be the foundation. I need you to be the wisdom. I need you to be the life. Because if you are my center, my source, my significance, then not only will I be able to handle this blank, but every other area of my life. Maybe the prayer that saves not just non-Christians to Christians, but what saves you, Christian, from where you are, where I am today, is to say, God, until unless I make you the center of my life, unless you are the center of my life, then it doesn't matter whatever helps other areas of my life. I'll continue to be trapped, enslaved, Jesus Christ didn't just come to forgive us. He came to set us free. And that's why some of you walked in here this morning. And whatever's in that blank, that's an area in your life that is shaking you. That is an area in your life that's falling apart. That is an area in your life where God has closed and shut doors. And we think, here's what, let me give you a visual. We think it's about what's in our hand. It's not what's in our hand, that blank. It's about what it represents. What it represents is you saying to him, you are my center. You are my non-negotiable. So in love, God will keep after you. Another way I put it, God will keep after you, not because he's after you, but because he's after you. Not to angry strip away our freedom, but to lovingly remind us that life is found in him. What, what fills that blank? It's one thing to enjoy your job. It's another thing for it to be the basis of your hopes and dreams. It's one thing to want success in life. It's another thing for it to define you. It's one thing to love your children. It's another thing to build your entire identity around them. You'll ruin them and you'll ruin yourself in the process. Center your life. Build your life on anything else besides Jesus and your life. My life will fall apart. God alone is able to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And he comes to rescue us from us, to set us free. We begin here. What is your motivational center? Being a Christian is getting up in the morning every day and saying, Jesus, you are my savior. You are my king. You are my treasure. You are my hope. You are my joy. You are my guide. You are my protection. You are my wisdom. You are my advocate. You are my strength. And I need you, and I love you, and I trust you to be all that and more for me today. 
What is your motivational center? I'm a Christian, Peter. I'm not asking that question. What is your motivational center? Verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. If you're paying attention this morning, you notice what the second thief says because it's incredibly counterintuitive. He's saying, I deserve to die. I've done some things. I've done some really, really bad things. I've killed people. I've destroyed lives. I, I deserve to, to, to die. He doesn't say like the first thief. I don't deserve to die. Get me out of here. I've done some things. I deserve to die. But then he says what? So welcome me into your kingdom. So welcome me into your kingdom. It makes sense to say I deserve to be punished. So punish me. Or I deserve to be rewarded. So reward me. But this guy has the audacity to say I deserve to be punished. So reward me. I deserve to be cast out. So bring me in. I deserve judgment. So give me grace. And the most amazing thing is Jesus doesn't say what? That makes no sense. He says what? You get it. He says, you and I get it. You're a horrible sinner. You deserve to be punished, but you'll be rewarded. You deserve to be cast out, but I'm going to bring you in. How? Why? Because of the darkness. Because of the darkness, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. Every place in the Old Testament that talks about the day that God is going to come and destroy all evil, all injustice, is described as a day of the Lord, the day of judgment, or the day of darkness. Joel 2.1. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. What is Luke telling us? This is judgment day before the judgment day. This is judgment day, church, before the judgment day. The justice of God, the wrath of God is coming down on the sinless son of God. The justice of God that eradicates and demolishes evil is eradicating and demolishing Jesus. In him, all things hold together, but on the cross, Jesus is unraveling. The creator, the maker of the world is on the cross and he is being unmade. And I ask you this question this morning. Why is he doing that? For you. And for me. Do you realize what is happening on that Friday? 
Our judgment, our judgment day is coming down on Jesus. Our judgment is coming down on Jesus for every sin, for every evil, for every injustice. Our, our judgment is coming down on Jesus for every lie, for every declaration of I don't need you. I will do my life my way. I will be my own God for every act of I will make anything and everything the non-negotiable except you for every sin, evil, and injustice. Jesus Christ is taking and receiving our judgment. His blood and his water flow mingle down why so that a murderer someone who deserves to die is able to say I deserve to die so welcome me into your kingdom On the cross, Jesus is punished for every sin, every evil, and every injustice so that we can be forgiven. Is this good news? Yeah. On the cross, Jesus is condemned like a common criminal so we can be declared innocent. On the cross, Jesus is cast out into the presence of the Father so that we can be taken in to the bosom of the Father. On the cross, Jesus bears our sickness and our disease so that we can be healed. On the cross, Jesus is abandoned so that we can be secure in his arms. On the cross, Jesus is forsaken so that you and I will never, ever be forsaken. On the cross, Jesus Christ, why have you forsaken me? So that we will never, ever have to doubt for the rest of our lives where we will be ever separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Is this good news? Is this good news? On the cross, Jesus substitutes himself in the center of God's justice so that we, so that we can be declared innocent. this week about the fact that all life-changing love is substitutional sacrifice. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. John 15, 12, greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. My favorite actor is Daniel Day-Lewis. I need him to unretire. <laughs> I need him to unretire. I will not go see another movie until he unretires. One of my favorite movies is The Last of the Mohicans. Anybody see that movie? You need to be a little bit older because it was, came out in 1992. Last of the Mohicans, I have the DVD at home. Anybody wants to come and watch it, come on over, we'll watch it together. 
If you're not familiar, Last Mohicans, the context is the French and Indian War. The three characters, the three characters at the center of this plot is a guy named Duncan, a British officer, Hawkeye, played by the incomparable Daniel Day Lewis, of course, and Cora. <laughs> Duncan is a British officer. And he loves Cora. He loves Cora, but so does Hawkeye. But who does Cora love? She loves Hawkeye and has rejected Duncan. In the very end of the movie, they've all been captured by the Huron Indians and taken as prisoners. And they're before the chief, the bar of justice, if you will. And the chief is speaking French to the captured three. And the chief is speaking French. And he says, and by the way, Hawkeye's the only guy out of the, out of the four that doesn't know French. And so Duncan is having to translate to Hawkeye what is happening. And the chief essentially says, Cora must die for the sins of her father. And the atrocities committed against our people. She must burn in the fire for the sins of her family. And then he turns to Duncan and Hawkeye and he says, you two can go. It's at that point, of course, that Hawkeye turns to Duncan. He says, I need you to translate for me. Tell him my life for hers. Tell him my life for hers. Tell him. And Duncan turns to the chief and utters something in French. And Hawkeye says, did you tell him? Did you tell him? And Duncan says, yes. But to his utter shock, the chief turns to Korah. And gives Korah to who? Hawkeye. And Duncan is taken by the office, by the, tra- by, the, by, by, the by the Indians, and he's thrown into the fire. Do you guys, some of you guys remember that scene? He's thrown into the fire. And, and, and as he falls into the fire, it's almost a form of crucifixion, right? Can I ask you something? This scene could be repeated a thousand times in all kinds of movies. What is it about scenes like this where you get a lump in your throat and you go, why, who did do this? Because even in our culture, there's this innate understanding that ultimate love is one of substitution, sacrifice. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Me for you. Sometimes I don't even know what to do with this even as I preach it. On the cross, he's saying me. For them, take me, take me. On the cross, Jesus is saying, I'm going to have all the judgment that you deserve fall on me. For all the sin, all the evil, all the injustice you've done. I am going to the fire for you. The gospel church says there is a judgment day, but the ultimate judge came in our place and took the judgment that we deserved. Greater love has no one than this, that the Son of God laid down his life for his friends. Is this good news? Jesus is the ultimate judge who is judge. Why? Because he didn't want to lose you. He doesn't want to lose me. And he willingly goes into the center of receiving. God's justice and wrath for our sins so that we can go free. Take me, let them go. I'll take their judgments. So on judgment day, you could stand on your feet and be accepted by the Father. 
I don't know how this could get old. I don't know how we allowed this truth to get old where our hearts are no longer melted by this. How do we come week after week, day after day, look at the cross and be unmoved, church? I'll tell you why. We don't just get saved by the gospel. We are transformed by going into it deeper. Do you and I allow the truth of this to penetrate our hearts? Do you and I, not once a year on Good Friday, this is the essence and the truth. <sighs> Remember me, he says. And then Jesus says what? Today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you th what do you think Jesus was saying when he said that? Now some people think what Jesus was saying was he was basically, hey, I'm here physically. I'm right here. You'll be okay. We'll be okay. So one of these days we'll reunite, but you'll be okay. Is that what Jesus was saying? Just merely providing physical comfort and nearness of his time. No, you and I know better, don't we? We know better. Because when Jesus said, today you'll be with me, witness Christ is something that's found throughout the New Testament. And it gets to this truth. To those who believe whatever is true of Christ is true of us as well. Jesus, whatever is true of Jesus, true of us as well. It's 2-4. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here's another one, Colossians 3.3. Your life is now hidden, what? With Christ in God. Simple question. If Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of God, where are you and I? Church, come on now. If Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and you and I are hidden with Christ in God, where are you and I right now? We are what? I know this is, you and I are what? You and I are what? Seated at the right hand of God. That means when God sees you right now, he sees you as he sees what? Come on. Come on, come on, come on, church. When God sees you right now, not tomorrow when you do better, religion, not next week if you behave. When God sees you right now, right now at this time, 10, 14 in the morning, Sunday, March, when God sees you right now, he sees you as his son, Jesus. I will never stop declaring that. God sees you as beautiful, as righteous, as holy as Jesus, as acceptable as Jesus, as glorious as Jesus. I will never stop declaring this truth because you can never tire of hearing it. Here's what Jesus says in John 17, 23. You've loved them, God, even as you love your us. Even as. That's not like you kind of like. That's not like a dim reflection of. Even as is when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Sit on that for a minute. When God sees you and me, I don't care what you did last night. I know that sounds harsh. I could care less what your week, what your month has been. If you are in Christ, God says, right now when I see you, I see you as I see Jesus. God will love you is not the gospel. God loves you is the gospel. God doesn't love some future version of you. God loves you now, today. 
Anybody, anybody need to hear this truth this morning? Because if there's anybody here who's haunted by their past, and who isn't haunted by our past? Good Lord. If there's anybody haunted by that, something you did, something you said, something mistake that you made, whenever Satan or your conscience or other people come and say, do you remember that? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? You say what? Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and says, I paid for that. That's my daughter, holy, righteous. There is no more judgment coming. I paid for that. All that made me an enemy of God was poured out on Jesus. Absorbed completely by him so that I'm no longer a wrath, under wrath, but under mercy. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by what, church? By what? Faith in what? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You, do you understand what I mean when I say every Sunday you need to go back to this again and again and again and again? Do you really think you're going to overcome that? by saying, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. Or do you think maybe, maybe overcoming that sin is coming to full recognition? I am loved. I am his child. I am his beloved. He paid for that. Why would I go back and do that again? He loves me. Even as he loves his son, Jesus. I mean, end with this. Verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple separated God's holy presence from the rest of the tabernacle and the temple. And the holiest man, the high priest on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, representing the holiest people on earth, the Israelites, would go in to the the, behind the curtain to offer sacrifices. But the minute that Jesus dies, this incredibly thick curtain that separates the holy of holies from the rest of the humanity is torn from top to bottom. By the way, just to tell you who, who did it, Cornerstone, top to bottom. And now the message is what? Anybody could come and meet God. And in the book of Mark, Mark at the very end says this, Mark 15:30, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, verse 39, and the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, and he said, surely this man is the son of God. This is the climax of the book of Mark. The whole book of Mark begins with Jesus, the son of God, and for 15 chapters, people are going, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he the son of God, the son of God? And at the very end, Mark says, here's the first guy who gets it, and who is it? It's a centurion. He goes, who's a centurion, Peter? He's a Roman soldier. Do you know how he got to be a centurion? He had to kill a lot of people. He had to kill a lot of people. He has seen bloodshed. He has, he has caused bloodshed. And Mark has audacity to say, you want to see the first person that gets it? The first person who is spiritual darkness and penetrate. First person who can go and see God? It's what? A centurion. A hitman. And you think there's no hope for you? See, see, come on up. My head's about to explode. <laughs> Some of you. See, here's to, if you're a Christian, you're sitting there going, oh man, Peter, I've heard this a thousand times, and I'm telling you, you don't get it. You don't. Because if you got it, your life will be different. 
If you got it, you, if, if we got it, our life would be different. That thing that stings, that criticism, it, it wouldn't sting. Th- that acceptance that you desperately long for, it, you would be able to say, no, no, don't need it. The thing that you place your hope, significance, identity in, the thing that you desperately want to live for, those things will no longer control you. And most of all, I think you'll be able to live in joyful confidence of who Jesus is. So as a Christian, I'm going to get to you in a second, but if you're a non-Christian, and you've been maybe coming for a bit, and you've been kind of collecting the dots, maybe today is the day that you put the dots together. And say, Peter, I, 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 what does it mean to be a Christian? I don't even, here, very simple. And so profound. Jesus' own words were, you need to repent and believe the good news. Christian and not, listen to this. Remember, gospel is not just what saves you, matures you. Here's what repentance is for non-Christian as well as Christian. Repentance is not just saying, God, I did some bad things. Repentance is, and be honest, it's coming before God and saying, God, the thing that fills that blank is this. That's my non-negotiable. That's the thing that I live for. Sure, I play religion. I, I, I do the Christian thing, but that's what I really, really live for. Repentance is acknowledging what that is. Acknowledging what that is rigorously honesty, acknowledging what that is and repentance true repentance it's the scary word but true repentance saying God I no longer want to build my life on that and with your help and with your strength I want to turn from it and begin building my life on you you think that's easy try doing it try doing it this is the reason why the Bible says offer your lives as living sacrifices every day because every day you and I come up and we go, God, if you will just do something about that. Oh, no, but it's not about that. It's about my heart and what centers me. And every day is act of repentance saying, I turn from that and I turn towards you. I turn from that and I look to you. I stop seeking that and I seek you. And then belief. Repent and believe. What is belief? It's not just adhering to a set of doctrinal statements, although that's a part of it. Belief is basically simple saying, God, accept me based on what Jesus did and not what I want to do. Accept me based on the accomplishments of Jesus and not my moral works. Accept me based on the fact that Jesus was judged for me. He was dying for me. He paid the price for me. And I receive that act of sacrifice for me. For me. John 1.12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's trusting in his finished work and not earning. Repent and believe. You see how that's not just for non-Christians, it's for those of you and me who say, I follow Jesus. It's for all of us who say. So I want to end with this this morning before we take communion. Will you be rigorously honest, church, this morning and say, has this, are you watching? The people stood watching. Are you just watching? Is it all so familiar to you? Is it all so common knowledge to you? Is it all so, I've heard it a thousand times to you. Or, 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 or has this and the light of this and the power of this and the strength of this and the wisdom of this 
Has this penetrated your heart? If it has not penetrated your heart, if you could be honest and saying, I walked in here this morning, Peter, and my heart is hard and my heart is cold towards the truth of his love for me, then be honest about it. He could handle it. And before you take communion, before you take communion, be honest about what it is that you're centering your life on right now. Well, you're non-negotiable. Is be honest about it and say, God, give me the strength to turn from this and turn towards you. Allow the truth, your gospel, and your love for me to melt my heart and to change my heart anew. And the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you whenever you take it do it in remembrance of me he loves you like that he loves you like that and then he took the cup the cup of the new covenant he said this is my blood so that we no longer come before God based on sacrifices of animals of blood of goat and sheep and doves we come because of the matchless grace and mercy of our God who poured out his life for us. When you're ready, I want to encourage you to come forward. I could only talk. That's all I can do. The work of your hearts being transformed and changed and being convicted is the work of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer for you and me this morning is that God would do his work. Father, may this old, old, old familiar story come alive anew in our hearts.